I think, I mean, if you were to push me, I think maybe that's what, that's, that's what my, that's what my job is. That in some shape or form, I'm a custodian of, of the mess um, of projects. Hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day, a podcast about architecture and the lives we each live in the company of buildings. I'm Emmett Scanlon and this week I talk to Connor Sreenan. Connor is the Director of Strategy and Design at Grange Gorman Development Agency. And as you'll hear, his work involves being involved with a dizzying array of design and construction projects across this part of Dublin. The Grange Gorman Development Area is a significant part of the city. It stretches from the Phoenix Park in the west to Dorset Street in the east, into Cabra and Fibsborough on the north, and right down to the River Livy Quays in the south. Much of the building work, though, is centred on the old Grange Gorman Campus Hospital, and a whole series of new buildings for a range of uses is under construction there. Connor moved to the agency from Hinhin Peng, one of Ireland's most well-known architecture practices. They are the architects who worked on the recent refurbishment of the National Gallery, and the last project Connor worked on at that practice was the Museum of Palestine. Avid listeners to the podcast would know that Connor wrote a piece about that building, in which he beautifully sets the scene for the construction of this project, which he called Building Palestine. Connor talks about the move from so-called public to private practice, and indeed this anchors much of what we discuss in the podcast, this artificial binary between the two strands of architecture endeavour and the idea of working for the public good. We start though with that text, and I ask Connor why he wrote it and what it meant. Uh, I was asked to write that piece by uh, by an architect actually in Palestine, and he was a guy that uh, he's absolutely brilliant, like a real intellect and a brilliant architect. You know, like a <laughs> I was going to say a rare combination, but he, he's just a, an absolute all rounder. And I became friendly with him uh, from travelling to Palestine, and he asked me to write a piece. I think he was curious about somebody coming to work in that context, and the the project um it was a competition so it had a particular profile and um anyway he asked me to write it and i, I found it a bit daunting when i was in college i didn't I, to be honest i didn't read that much it didn't i read but it didn't stick i i just never found it you know reading stuck and i never really wrote i mean i wrote when i had to you know for you know at various points for you know dissertations and, and bits of thesis and whatever and one of the big, uh, like, uh, one of the one of the strong memories I have in college, which I found really liberating, was I think Peter Carroll was the editor of Building Material, or he was heavily involved, and he had asked Shane de Blackham to write a piece, and Shane de Blackham wrote him a letter and said, "Look, I I don't I can't do this. I I can't write about architecture. I think it's inadequate." And Peter, or the editorial board had the incredible foresight to publish the letter yeah. as it was. And I just thought uh, it, it was a real moment of, it was a, it was a relief. It felt like a relief. So uh, when I was asked to write this piece about the museum in Palestine, while it was daunting, I just thought, uh, I'm just going to write what I see. Uh, and I'm just going to describe what I see. Um, Catherine Optobeek and I, from Heenan Peng, had led that project. And I think writing that piece let me stand back and I think now looking back at that piece that I'm pretty certain now having having 
you know, it was it was written five years ago at this point. Um, and when I look back and when I read it now, it was a moment that clarified that my interest was in the scene as opposed to any one particular detail alone, if that makes sense. I don't mean the scene of architecture. I mean the actual scene of construction, the scene of the mechanics that make buildings, the scene of the site, the scene of the, the building being clamoring full yeah. of, of people. So I've been listening. I don't know if you know um, Keelan Hughes. She's got a... Uh, She's a, a a novelist or an author, and she's got a, a new book coming out. And she's been kind of, you know, I've been listening to her a lot promoting that book. And she's been talking about how Zadie Smith described those two types of novelists. She, she wrote this essay a number of years ago, and she described one as the micromanager, one as the macro planner. And the micromanager writes a novel and, and like intensely writes the first 20 pages and reworks it and reworks it and reworks it. And it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of dependent on a form of tunnel vision. Uh, whereas the macro planner s- configures a plot and then tests, you know, different endings, uh, different characters and so on. And it feels like that macro planner uh, depends on, relies much more on a peripheral vision. And writing that piece made me feel like it had tuned a peripheral vision as opposed to a tunnel vision. Um, and so that's why I like, you know, it's funny. I hated writing. I never read. I wrote that piece and I, uh, I this might sound a bit weird, but I love it. And, that, and that's why I pitched it uh, when I saw your call. It, it's very, it's a great piece because what it starts to do, you know, which is almost like an untold or rarely told story of, as you say, the scene of, of particularly construction is this conviviality, this social um, process that's going on that is, sustained and on the ground and about a whole bunch of people coming together from different places and perspectives and actually having to get along to make something as complicated and sophisticated as a building, let alone this building in Palestine. And when you start in your piece to start to intersect the kind of, you know, mechanics or the processes of construction with the processes of the social processes of eating together and the kind of flora and fauna and the sensual experience of the actual scene or site, it starts to really, you know, expand maybe in many ways or heighten our understanding of what's really going on when we're, when we're building. Yeah, it did for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. it did for me. Like, it's funny, you know, I was going to say Catherine and I's role, but I'll only speak for myself because I don't think it's fair to speak for, for, for her. She's not here, but I, Certainly, I felt very early on that my role, um, I mean, as the, the role of the architect in that particular project was to transfer the value of an idea because the context was so uh, alien and I was so alien to it. So there's this kind of traditional, uh, um, I guess, perception as the architect at the center. And in that context, I was completely uh, both at once in the center, you know, responsible with the team for producing information, answering questions, all that kind of stuff. But also uh, concurrently, completely peripheral because the context was so wild. And I think I cottoned on quite early that more than any other project, the, the, the role that I had was to transfer the value of the idea. If the team got the value of the idea, then I could kind of, you know, tiptoe back because it was so complex. And it's not that the building, I mean, the, the building was challenging for sure, but I think it, the, the, the complexity was 
there were bigger fish to fry there and there were easier things to do. And, you know, without people valuing the basic idea, it was never going to happen. Um, and working on a building like that so far away, um, was that your first time having to travel to that extent? And how long did you spend going back and forth to Palestine as part of the, the design and kind of construction process? Probably between us, we, um, we spent about three years back and forth. I guess at its peak, it was probably, you know, one week out of four or one week out of five. And so it was intense. Uh, like, I'll be honest, it was a very difficult project to come down from. It was right. a really, really, really intense experience um, and uh, really rich. Uh, yeah, so it was, I, I guess, I don't know if, it, yeah, it was frequent. It was a lot. It was a lot of travel. Yeah. When you say it was difficult to come down from and intense, I mean, what, what, what do you mean? Do you mean that it, it, you were, the project somehow became really an essential part of your life at that moment? It was living with you as much as you were living with it? And when it, I mean, you, you sound like a, a, a kind of performer on stage who always talks about that moment of come down after being on stage for two hours and having, you know, an audience that moment afterwards is quite extraordinary. So how, how do you, how do you mean that I haven't heard someone talk about architecture in that way? Yeah, it's funny, actually, I've never thought about it that way. Like in a way there was a huge aspect of performance to it because, um, and I'm sure others who've worked abroad I'm sure this is this is common because you arrive and you're there for a week. It's incredibly intense. And then you go. So you arrive and everyone's everyone's delighted to see you. And then they're pulling and dragging out of you for a full week. It's relentless. Yeah. Uh, and you come back and you're completely creased, you know, and I like I, I have really, really strong memories of cycling in Dublin the week after coming back from uh, site um, and not really knowing where I was. Because of the the differences, I guess you know the, the the latitude and the freedom and and the kind of looseness of Dublin and uh, the intensity of being on site and it it yeah somehow that context beyond just the project kind of uh, gets into you and I I, I don't necessarily I mean I mean it was I think the difference. Between the two, the two, you know, my, my, the difference has certainly heightened the, the, the intensity of it. But I guess it's similar for other people who, who, you know, who go somewhere else to work intensely and come back and it's frequent. But it, yeah, so it was very difficult to get my head into another project. Mm. Now you work in Grange Gorman. How, how long was the gap between working on the Palestine project and moving to Grange Gorman? It was actually quite short. Uh, now that I think of it, uh, the museum, the museum kind of ran between 2011, 2012, and it opened in 2016. And it was, co- it was pretty, it was pretty consistently uh, busy. It, like it didn't, um, it happened, you know, the, the competition was won, the building started. And, you know, in, in terms of, I mean, it's not a huge building, but in terms of getting that project across the line, that was pretty quick. And I came back and I think, you know, it's funny, the, 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 um, the link to Grange Gorman, I had led a, an unsuccessful bid for work in Grange Gorman and uh, sought, a, sought a, 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 like a debriefing from the agency at the time and just, just literally trying to figure out what, what we had done wrong and how we would do it better the next time. Yeah. Um, and um, 
I, I remember being quite blunt at that meeting and just like, you know, the, the job was gone. So just, just explain to us, you know, who, who didn't like the stuff and why didn't they like it? And uh, not necessarily who did like it. Um, <laughs> the guys were a little bit taken aback, I think. Anyway, all we re- really wanted to know was how to tweak and how to, how to, how to hint on the next one. Yeah. Um, and then I went and uh, led a bid for a piece of work in Trinity uh, and we were successful. And so the distance between Palestine missing the mark in Grange Gorman and getting the um, project in Trinity, that was all quite tight. And I think, you know, Palestine was still very much in my head when we started the project in Trinity. And Trinity was, I guess I had this heightened sense of the other stuff around projects. Um, You know, and Trinity's been there for 400, 450 years. And the project was in the shadow of Carlex Berkeley Library. And that was coming up to its 50th birthday around the time and so there was there was again all this stuff around the background of you know in this case making a city over a period of four or five hundred years and working with the people within trinity that were also in a kind of a shadow you know these kind of background champions of these really significant pieces of the city Mm. um and, and particularly that set piece around the old library and the Berkeley Library and the museum building. And I remember, I remember literally looping around Fellow Square because you can do that. You can, you, can, you can climb down into the bowels of the Berkeley Library. You can wind your way up into the East Pavilion of the old library. You can climb across the roof. You can go down the West Pavilion. You can go into the 1937 building. You can literally go around, circumnavigate the Fellow Square. And I remember thinking to myself that somehow that background scene of city making has been going on forever um, and, uh, and it will go on and that there's a role in there somewhere. And I left the Trinity job to go to the agency. Um, a job came up, I applied for it. Um, so what, what, is your, what is your job and what do you do there now? So the, um, the Grange Gorman Development Agency is a state agency to develop a site between Stony Valor and Fibsborough, which is about 30 hectares. And um, the, the, the agency has a kind of, the agency has an act. So there's an act in place that has established the agency and the agency, our, our role is to, um, you know, to kind of, not to be too glib about it, it's to make city. Um, there's a history on that site and, that's been revealed and we have uh i guess four what you could call clients the health service executive technological university dublin the department of education skills and the communities in the neighborhood around us um and so I, my role within that is i'm a director with uh, responsibility for strategy and design and um, with a fellow director for finance and a director of construction and so we're as part of that team supporting uh, an incredibly supportive CEO um, and then also uh, to, to another side supporting a kind of a discrete group of, of uh, in my case, project coordinators who are kind of the point leads on projects. So, yeah, so it's a relatively small group. It's about 20 to 25 people. Um, and uh, each of us c- brings a piece of um, experience predominantly from within the built environment, but quite broadly too. So architects, engineers, uh, quantity surveyors, 
um, communicators, corporate governors, accountants, public art coordinators, um, or public art coordinator. So it's a broad group uh, and we're small. And yeah, that's the... It's a big, it's a big part of the city and it's situated on the north, north of the city. I mean, how does it compare to, the, to, to Trinity in terms of its scale of... I mean, you made that link in, in, in the way that you described your experiences in Trinity and somehow it's not impossible to draw a link between that as you have, between your interest then in another campus piece of city that was, I suppose, developing and changing and building on its history. How do the two compare in terms of size so we can get a sense of the scale of them? The Grange Gorman site is about, it's just shy of 75 acres. Trinity, I think, is in and around 50 odd. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're not too, too dissimilar in terms of scale. Yeah, I guess it's, um, I think in, in, in one of my interviews for the job at Grange Gorman, I, I think I presented the two, actually, now that you mentioned it, uh, side by side and made that point that... Uh, despite the fact that Trinity has been present on that site for 400 odd years plus, that they're still, um, you know, building and rebuilding. You know, I think Loose Hall, at the time at the time of the interview, Loose Hall had been demolished and the new college business was under construction. And I thought it was fascinating that, you know, that even after that long span in time, that, you know, Trinity are still getting things right, getting them wrong, getting them right again. Whereas in Grange Gorman, um, sorry, the other thing I should have said about Grange Gorman is there's a Grange Gorman sits within a strategic development zone, so there's a uh, there's been a huge process since a government decision in 2002, uh, a huge plan led process to put in place um, the the qualities of a land use uh, master plan, and so there's kind of an, there's an outline planning permission uh, or development permission for a huge amount of, of building. In Grange Gorman, so there's a plan. It's it's very much you know there's a there's a master plan. So I guess in that sense, there's a there's a pretty uh, discrete point of difference in the um, the pace and the manner in which the Grange Gorman site is intended to be developed uh, and Trinity. Not that there wasn't a master plan for Trinity. I mean, I think that you know there definitely was a plan and a strategy there. I guess just in terms of time, there's a big difference. It appears when you walk around and go down to that part of the city now, there has been a lot of recent construction again in on the campus, around the campus. How is the how's the project going? Uh, it's going really well. There is a lot of activity. You, you know, when you cast back to 2002, and it, you know, it's easier to kind of slice this up looking back, but there have kind of been these increments of five years, so a huge amount of work you know, in that period between 2002 and leading up to the master plan in 2007, 2008, a huge amount of background work in order to, to have the, you know, the, the uh, political will um, to initiate the project. And then that period between the master plan um, and the um, right up to, so between 2007 and eight up to 2011, so that, that shift in central administration in the government a huge amount of uh, plan-led work uh, in terms of transposing a master plan into a planning scheme, which is the statutory planning document that sits within the development plan of Dublin City Council. Uh, and then this, you know, in, in, in 2011, then that general election, which outturned, a, I guess, a, a reforming government um, and, you know, had 
I guess there was a lot of development projects called into question, but Grange Gorman project really, I think, leveraged all the thinking uh, and drawing up to that point uh, and were literally top of the heap for the national stimulus package in 2012. And so then the next five-year period up to about from 2012 up to 2017 or 18, uh, a huge amount of infrastructural work um, and not just pipes in the ground, but public realm, playgrounds and spaces between where buildings will be. And so we're kind of then in a in a period of of um, intense development now, um, with two two really large public private partnership buildings for uh, TU Dublin coming to a close over the coming uh, weeks, and having delivered two projects for the health service executive, we're uh, advancing with um, designs for housing on the site. For the health service executive which is um, incredibly exciting um, and we're out to tender for TU Dublin's library so um, and on site with three other projects ranging from you know small to medium so it's a real mixed bag but it's really busy thankfully. One of the most impactful things you know or uh, let's say demonstrably impactful things when you when you are moving around the campus is this link that has been made between which cuts through the new broadstone plaza there up from the campus and down past the constitution hill flats and across into the king's inns you know that this you've more or less constructed a new thoroughfare that was implied there but never connected right exactly yeah that link in particular um like you know it it, it fans out at broadstone but the actual link, that east-west link from, from what would have been the uh, the Broadstone Basin through to Grange Gorman, that's been in the waiting for 300 years. And that was intentionally in, in, in spring of 2018, when the two public-private partnership projects started on site. One of the, um, and I guess maybe this is kind of... Uh, reflective of the, maybe the, one of the roles of the agency, that link was negotiated through that construction site to open up to the north inner city to the east uh, well in advance of, you know, final finishes. And that was transformative, uh, you know, in a very pragmatic way for, um, for the students and the parents and the staff of the uh, school which is in a temporary location and which we're just about to go on site with actually, it meant that they no longer had to either travel the whole way down south and tail back up again or travel the whole way north and tail down. Uh, and then also for patients from um, or patients of the primary care centre and also people passing through east-west. So yeah, so th- that link has been, has been in the waiting for an awful long time. Um, and I guess it was very interesting to see when backland site was opened up um, how that started to uh, recalibrate people's perception of where they were in the city um, not having been able to to come through that way ever before yeah you you identified that um one of your key stakeholders is 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 the community who are the people who are living and working in the environs around the the campus who are part of the grange gorman let's say development area but aren't you know, which is a much bigger bubble than just the physical parkland, let's call it, or the campus land. 
do do those kinds of projects that really have significant public, let's say, public realm impact outside of the campus, do, uh, do they bring up kind of specific community issues, or is that part of the kind of conversations you're having with with the community as stakeholder? I mean, what what is that process like? Um, in 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 a weird way, they th- those kind of projects are the project. I think um, uh, there's a huge amount of communication back and forth between the community, both formal and informal also through um, a public art initiatives. You know, the, the, the public art strategy in Grange Gorman feels like it's been very progressive in that the um, a common version of public art is that a proportion of the capital cost of a, of a public project is, um, is protected for a piece of art that might be something physical, you know, a piece of sculpture. Um, or something embedded into a project or applied to a project. And in the case of Grange Gorman, the, the the access or the security that funding has been pooled and various programs of public art uh, have been funded from that. And they've a lot of them have been around engagement with the site and engagement with communities beyond just the site. The act that I referred to earlier on, there's a really interesting drawing in that act, a statutory definition of the neighbourhood. And the neighbourhood stretches from mm. the matter down to the forecourts over to the Phoenix Park and up to uh, the beginnings of um, New Cabra, let's say. And there's 15,000 people in that, in that patch of ground. So I, I think I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but I think projects like that temporary link that is slowly becoming now paved permanently, they feel very much core to the project and very much on a par or if not greater than the buildings themselves. I, let me put it this way. Um, if we were to close that passage you know, in the morning or, or when that passage needs to be closed occasionally for um, pieces of you know through construction or something it's a big problem for, for people you know so that's so yeah i don't i don't know don't, don't. it's already become part of the i think so yeah the, yeah. the, the citizens kind of use of that part of the city i think right you, it's busy yeah i think so and yeah. when students finally return to the campus um post-covid i guess it'll become even busier with the lewis and, and all of that connection on a day-to-day basis, your your job then, I mean, you've, you've mentioned the buildings, plural. You've talked about various typologies coming from the HSC to do with uh, healthcare buildings, housing, and obviously the educational buildings use this public realm project. Is part of your job to then be involved in all of those things all of the time at the same time? Or how does, how, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I, it, yeah, kind of. Yeah, like it's, um, uh, look, d- it's it's uh, it feels a little bit like that earlier discussion about being in the periphery and supporting from the periphery and having the um, a sense of the scene uh, and knowing when and how uh, and who to support and so that's largely internal but it's also external as well. I was uh, Nan McLaughlin. Um, I was listening to something he uh, a talk or something during the summer, and he was describing um, architecture as a public negotiation, and then more recently, as a you know a subliminal experience for most people. And in many ways, those two um, descriptions kind of describe, I think, what I do. It's being part and facilitating a form of public negotiation, and it's also being, I think, in a layer somewhere. 
and and the position of that layer shifts from time to time. You know whether it's a whether it's trying to um, improve a procurement process or whether it's trying to support uh, any one of the team through a, a sticky spell. I, like I, I guess one of the clear thoughts I do have about my role is that um, I feel I know now that every project is a mess in some shape or form. And um, I, I think probably um, or possibly problems emerge when either people pretend the project isn't a mess or there's no custodian of the mess. And I think, I mean, if you were to push me, I think maybe that's what, that's, that's what my that's what my job is that in some shape or form i'm a custodian of of the mess um of projects and that feels where i operate in that in that mess that sounds like a really valuable job (laughs) for for other people it's a really interesting way of describing it because i suppose in the first instance you're accepting and then either passively or actively in certain scenarios, declaring that, like, listen, guys, we know this is complex. This is a mess. Something, mm. will, something will arise. It's not that you can mitigate and eliminate every scenario when you start planning. And therefore, the, the, the role is to, is it what, to assist people to negotiate the mess and to, to deliver projects and make things happen and make better places for people by negotiating through that with them? Kind of, I think, and I hope. Like, the the... the, the... I guess I, when I refer to mess, I don't mean it as a pejorative. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I think when I talk about, like I often think to myself around this notion of blind spots across systems, and I also don't don't mean that as a pejorative. And uh, so it's blind spots, I, uh, probably blind spots as as a as a as an outcome of mess, and it's trying to work with people to to figure out what the shape of those blind spots are, and then form that shape uh, and somehow pack it back into a project and see if that can improve outcomes. Okay, let's just take one second because my bin is being collected outside. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) It's just, and there's a guy, there's a guy, uh, that's why I keep having to mute my microphone. There's also a guy (laughs) sawing a railing. I don't think the microphone will pick it up, but it's just, they're all driving me crazy. All right. Um, Well, for what it's worth, I can't hear it. Okay, well, that, well, yeah, okay, actually, that's, well, that's good. That's yeah. good. I guess it's worth talking about, I mean, in architecture there, and it's not a binary, but let's say there are, there are two general structures of practice or how you might operate as an architect. One is in the private world of the private office, like you were in Hinhin Peng, uh, which is called, you know, private practice. And then there's public, public work. So you've, you've moved from one way to another way, which in some senses is probably not a very dramatic move, but in other ways it might be because your role is very different. Um, You're not sitting down every day in the current role, but this is not specific to public practice, but let's say, but you're not sitting down every day drawing and designing buildings in the way that you might have been in in Hinhin Peng. That move, which has been there for a few years now, what does that reveal to you or, you know, has that sometimes changed like that? does ask you to reconsider or offers you an opportunity to just rethink or refresh an engagement with the with the subject that you're working in and the people that you work with has it revealed anything to you about architects and architecture and where it sits within maybe wider conversations on the city even and what your what your role is as an architect 
Yes, and if not, if if that sounds a bit um, reluctant, it's probably, if I'm honest, probably still feel in a in a in a form of transition. Like as you describe it, private practice. That's you know where I had worked for fifteen plus years, and I'm in my current role. You know, it's it's really quite fresh, but I think. And, you know, these are kind of relatively half-baked thoughts, but I think they're, uh, I mean, I have two things in my head and they are arrogance and ambivalence. And I think I have this uh, sense of arrogance as a threat and ambivalence as a kind of an untapped opportunity. Um, And I think... And I'm I'm trying to thread carefully, um, because I mean they are kind of rough thoughts. But uh, there's it, it, there's when you stand back or when I stand back now, there is this insatiable craving for certainty, and that's a, you know it's not a new thing. Obviously, it's you know there's a there's a basic craving for certainty, um, and that. But in the in the in the I think in the field of the built environment that creates or induces this need of being expert. The experts emerge, uh, but of course have huge blind spots. And I think it's it's kind of only reasonable sometimes the experts then have a degree of arrogance, which is really unhelpful. And I think it's probably underpinned in, uh, thinking of architecture, I think it's probably underpinned in, or has been uh, underpinned by uh, education by the, the the kind of structures of education in architecture and um, but also in practice and the when i think about ambivalence i i mean to in some way accept a state of uncertainty as a as a ground of possibility as opposed as opposed to just you know being completely paralyzed and not being able to make a choice and um, so it's not at either end of that spectrum but i have thought of you know, of a client, you know, so you, so you hear this phrase of expert client. Um, mm. And I certainly have thought about uh, what if that was reframed as, you know, a curious client or a generous client or a collaborative client. And I think, uh, you know, those three traits exist, but there's this expectation to be an expert client. Uh, and then in, in terms of um, practice, there's... Um, there's a lot of talk about leadership um, and, and that falls back. You know, leaders, it's the expectation is that leaders have the answers and have all of the answers. So I think, um, you know, in that sense, you know, it might be interesting if leadership was more defined by what leaders don't know as opposed to what they do know. Yeah, I mean, I guess they are some thoughts I have had. How uh, do you think this... Um this arrogance as you call it or or also this maybe when people are put forward as definitive experts on something Mm -hmm. and the system almost silos them into those compartments to not the system we designed the system the system Mm -hmm. is us right but anyway the consequence is people end up somehow you know i this is my expertise and that's yours do you feel sometimes that there is this also kind of defense mechanism in in that scenario that somehow there is a there's a reluctance to you know, stay or move outside your lane and for for people to work in particular ways that might 
be more productive or might be more open? Does it do you, do you have you observed that 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 expertise in fact isolates people to the point where collaborative work or cross conversation or cross pollination of ideas is is more challenging? I guess I I do think it is generate a form of defense. Yeah, for sure, and that makes total sense to me. You know, because as you describe it, the system has um, has has structured things in a way that if I don't know the answer, that doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do. I think that's a problem. I mean, I guess I, th- I think your original question was, you know, having now shifted in form or shifted in practice, has anything come to light? And I guess that's what's come to light. Like I, you know, and I kind of reluctantly say this because it feels like a, it sounds like a slogan or something, but public services is, is a real privilege. Uh, like it, it, it has this sense of weight, um, and by weight I mean burden, but it also has a sense of there's inc- my experience of it is um, an incredible sense of collectiveness, and what I would describe as, and I also don't say this lightly, what I would describe as collaboration. Like I work with a bunch of people who are really different to me, um, and have different viewpoints, but it, viewpoints that that I'm engaging with or we engage with together on a day-to-day basis that I guess I probably didn't experience in private practice, which is, you know, I, I would have been working with a lot of like-minded people. Um, and uh, so I guess there's this thought that's going around my head, which is, um, which definitely is a slogan, which is better by difference. Uh, and I'm sure I picked it up from somewhere else. And that's my sense of public service. Um, and uh, it was a risk, you know, to um, to switch, I think. Yeah. And it does feel like a switch for sure. Um, and I do think that I'm in the middle of that switch. Being Not being in the center, being in the periphery feels uh, comfortable. And do you ever think about what other people think about what you've done and that you've moved from one form of practice to another form of practice? You know, that sometimes when you make changes in a profession, particularly one as comprehensively, what's the word, um, where the, cu- the culture of architecture is very comprehensively, in many ways, defined. And, and uh, you know, uh, you, you mentioned education. Um, and I think the way in which architects emerge into the world, emerge into practice and then start acting is still quite consistently portrayed as, as one, or, one or two ways. And what you're doing is possibly not what might have been expected of you when you left university. So do you ever do you ever wonder about that? If I try and be honest, I think I would probably be more concerned with their view if I was directly engaged in the making of architecture as a public servant. Do, do you know what I mean? If I yeah. if I was an architect in public service, which I'm not. So so I don't um yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't think about that, to be honest. And I think, I guess, I, I, yeah, I, I haven't really thought about it this way until you've asked the question. But I, I, I um, or asked the last few questions. But I think I feel, um, I still feel very much in the middle of a transition. Um, so I don't think about uh, returning to uh, a previous form of practice. Um, like I, um, the uh, one of the things that I found thrilling out of um, the um, free space Biennale 
was what's happened with the um, free market group. And uh, I was listening to Miriam Delaney last week uh, and she described this notion that this, uh, you know, if, if, if as an architect, you're not talking about design, um, there's, you know, there is an, an interpretation that you've rejected that and you don't, you don't do that anymore. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, as you describe a binary, an on-off thing. Yeah. Um, and um, I, like, it's very much not. And I think I twigged that a long time ago before I jumped, but had less appetite or less stamina for slogging it out over a detail. Um, and that's not to say that it's, you know, there's, there's, there's no value in that. Of course there is, but it just wasn't, I guess I didn't, I don't, I don't think it was for me. I mean, one of the things you have been doing in, in Grange Gorman, and I think you've been participating in, you know, actively participating in conversations about this, but also acting on the ground is, I suppose, discussing and debating and enabling ways of putting work and architects together and then also you know building commissions that you've been thinking about commissioning and then you've been thinking about competitions and you've been also presenting you know putting work from Grange Gorman out into the public domain as architectural work so models and drawings and trying to exhibit things that are that are happening um so part of your interest also seems to be let's use your own words or the, your, your job title strategic about thinking about the the infrastructure i suppose that 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 exists in and around the and, and in and around the intersection between let's say the the world of commissioning because you are a commissioner of work or you're acting as part of a commissioning body and then the the work itself and then those who might be arriving to carry out their work is that a role and a and a part of your responsibility or interest that you you're kind of enjoying because you seem pretty engaged with that 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 part I and mean, you could one could sit back and just get on with the job, but you're, you're kind of questioning certain things as well. Yeah, I, look, I guess I'm really lucky. It's, an, it's both an area of interest and part of my job. Um, and when I do it, I very consciously do it representing the work of the agency and the, um, the work of lots of people who wouldn't necessarily be associated with you know, the process of city making. So it's fortunate for me, and I think one of the um, I think one of the things the agency does really well is um, both talks a lot and listens a lot. Like it, we spoke briefly earlier on about education, and yeah. I did um, at a point uh, teach or con- contribute to education in, in 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 universities, and I have I. I have to say, then I always felt that after about two or three years, I had less to give and, and tended then to move on. But I, and, and this, is, this is definitely, I think, on the back of the work of the agency uh, last year, was invited to, to, to uh, design reviews in, in four colleges. And what's really interesting, two of those, two of those uh, engagements or exchanges were solely focused on uh, public procurement. And I think that's really, uh, yeah, I, I find it interesting to be perfectly honest. And I find it interesting to be talking about that with students. And one of those sessions, actually, we, we kind of, we split into a group and we, we um, I worked with a bunch of students and asked them to, what would, you know, to, to 
design their ideal architectural competition, what would it look like? And had the benefit of being able to talk to them about, well, or explain to them how a client might consider uh, that process and what the client might want to get out of it and how they might think, how they, how they might think about it. And I found it really rich and I found it, um, I found it, uh, like I think public servants like there's a there's a and look I didn't teach for that long but you know there's a there's a there's a um, there's a practice of practitioners teaching in architecture that's uh, valuable and I think public servants are those who kind of operate in in roles like mine I think the I think there should be more of an overlap of that I think I think more public servants who are involved in the built environment um, should be engaged in education yeah I think so too I mean it always strikes me as slightly you know, unusual that that isn't the case. And it's probably down to, um, well, there's probably many reasons for it. But then, I mean, quite a lot of public sector or public servant architects, let's call them, um, from various local authorities and people like yourself do do arrive and visit in universities and contribute to conversations and programs. And Ali Graham would be a regular visitor to many schools, for example, in, in Dublin and would always contribute, you know, significantly to conversations on the city, both strategically and in terms of, you know, delivery of various things on the ground. But it does all seem unusual to me, and I think to students, that there is this division between, let's call it the private and public world of practice, when actually there is a notion that we're all in it together and we're all trying to do the same thing, albeit in different structures. But also for students, that when they meet somebody like you and they you know, it's the see it to be it thing, isn't it? And they see you and, you know, you can talk about all kinds of things and you have a history with buildings, but you're also being strategic and thinking about the city and you're working on 75 acres of, of Dublin with a whole variety of kinds of people and practitioners and public art programs in the community. I mean, it's a fantastic job, right? It's a fantastic, there are many fantastic jobs within that world that you'd love students just to know that, well, actually, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in being that kind of person because that's how I'd like to make a contribution. And architecture is so complex and has so many issues that we need to be addressing and discussing all over and over and over again to kind of do better. It does feel you're, you're right to me that somehow the public world shouldn't interfere more in the, in the what is actually a public good, which is university life. When you think it, just listening to you there, the Dublin City Council are the biggest landlord in the state. And the OPW, I guess, are the biggest commissioner of architecture in the state. So it really feels like it shouldn't be the exception in terms of that interface with education. Like you, you mentioned public goods. The, and what's interesting, or what I found interesting about the Free Space Biennale, you know, Paolo Barata, the, um, I think he's probably just finished as the, the president, yeah. president. Yeah, He's an economist and he's a former public servant, a member of the Italian cabinet. And I, I think he had a trade portfolio. Um, and he, I remember when, when Free Space was launched and he spoke about something in and around the fact of that even the creation of, of architecture in a private capacity gives rise to public goods and that architecture is an instrument, both of you know collective political capacity, but also individuals. And he, you know, when, when economists, like free space always felt like me after the event, like a, like a feeling 
and and the feeling was generosity and that was it and it was like that that that's that's what it was capturing and that's what it was promoting and that's what it was advocating when when economists talk about public goods they talk about these they talk about having them these these having these two traits be non-revenous and be non-excludable and so that that effectively means that if if i use it that public good it doesn't uh, stop you from using it and that it's not possible to stop somebody who doesn't pay for it who or who can't pay for it pay for it benefiting from it and i've become all public servants are governed by this but this this document called the public spending code and the public spending code uh, maps out particularly for for capital projects how to how to uh, generate value for money so you know and it's 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 a, it's 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 a it's a well thought out document and it refers to public goods and it refers to them in that sense that economists talk about them as market failures that because of those two traits the market let's say won't provide them and the public spending code you know lays out that it is appropriate therefore for the government to ensure that those acts or sorry that those goods are provided for those markets you know to pick up the failures of the market and like i remember i, I like figuring out that it was a market failure uh, and it was the state's role to pick that up when i kind of first came across that that theory i thought it was great you know i thought it was uh, it felt like good stuff that the state will, the state is there to protect and provide these things that nobody else will you know there are others there are other economists who would um who particularly i don't know if you've come across mariana mazucato mm. she's she's been like doing lots of work to debunk the the device of nature of public versus private that a lot of the private gains have been on the back of massive public investment basic research education you know the stuff that we've been talking about and that that there's a narrative out there that is divisive um and unhelpful yeah um so i think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, of reframing and it's 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 not actually uh, it's it's possibly not e- even um restructuring but retelling of an existing story that's not so and that's actually not so divisive thanks to connor for taking the time to tell us about his work in grange gorman i admire the clarity of purpose in his job description that he is a custodian of the mess of projects in the built environment i think this is brilliant And that kind of enabling, steering and directional role is one that is not always discussed in architectural practice, but is, to use the word Connor chose in another context, so generous somehow. Also essential. If you want to learn more about the museum in Palestine by Hini Hinpeng, it is well published and can be found by an online search. And the text about the building that Connor wrote can also be found where you found this podcast. It's a bonus edition called Building Palestine, and it is read for us by Steve Murray. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and share it far and wide. The music is by Sinead Finnegan, recorded live, and it is played by the Dalmain String Quartet. Until next time, stay safe, and because you can, you should go to a gallery. It can only do you good. <laughs>